Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written three dozen cookbooks, including one out this fall, The Look and Cook Air Fryer Bible. If you're at all interested in air frying, this thing has got 704 photographs for 125 recipes. Every single step of every recipe is photographed. You can't make a mistake. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about air frying in this episode of our podcast. In this episode, we're focusing on allergy-free eating and eating with people who have various food allergies. We're going to talk through that. Plus, Bruce has an interview with Kayla Capiello. She She's the author of Easy Allergy-Free Cooking. Of course, we're going to give you a one-minute cooking tip. And of course, we're going to tell you what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. We want to talk about how to cook for everyone these days when no one eats anything. <laughs> I take great offense at that, but I am a ridiculous omnivore. You if basically are. I eat it, if it's put on the plate in front of me, you were raised that way. I wasn't. I was raised in a spine. I was raised in a house where food was put on the table, and if I didn't want to eat it, I was welcome to go in the kitchen and make something else for myself. But my mother was no. not going to make anything else. No. But the other thing is. I don't ever remember being punished for not eating. Mm. So, But you weren't allowed to go get yourself a bowl of cereal no. if you didn't want to eat the liver and bananas. No, I wasn't. And yes, his mother made liver uh, and yes, bananas. she did. Um, it's true. Uh, but <laughs> no, I wasn't. And it, I don't know. Now, well, this is so much longer conversation. It may have to do, I was adopted as a kid, and it may have to do with adoptive kid syndrome. Maybe. That, you know, you just so badly want to please these, your adoptive parents. Maybe. I think I had Jewish kid syndrome. I'm just going to eat what the hell I want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So anyway, we want to look a little bit about this because it's not true that no one eats anything. No. But people are now more forward with what makes them their stomach upset, yep. which gives them dietary yep. distress. I don't think it's actually hard to do this. I just think it requires a level of consciousness. And I think that that is a really important thing. And we want to give you some tips and tricks right. for how to cook for other people. And don't just say, no, I'm not going to do it. Because eating with friends, eating with family, sharing a meal is so important. It's important for your well-being. It's important for your happiness. It's well-being. It's important for your health just to share food. So as Mark said, here are a few tricks. One, keep notes. Yeah, I think this is really important. And we keep notes. I keep a little record of what we feed people <laughs> so we don't have people back over for repeats. Not that there are all that many repeats in our house, but, you know, I keep a little record of what's been eaten. There are apps that can do this for you. There are dinner party apps that allow you to track what you fed other people. Um, I find those cumbersome because I can never make the app fully do what I want it to do. And honestly, a pen and a piece of paper does better for me. But it's important here that you can make notes. Uh, for example, we kind of know our friends who, let's say, avoid dairy or we know our friends who avoid gluten. We have one friend who will not eat eggs if they're visible, right? So I know that I can make... Now, that's not an allergy. That's not an allergy. That's That's just a a personal... That's a personal taste. And that's... You know something? If someone has a personal taste, it has to be honored just as much as someone who has an allergy. Because I think we have to honor what our friends like and don't like. Okay, but I can't feed someone with celiac gluten 
because they're going to get really violently ill. Well, of course. If I put an egg down in somebody who doesn't like eggs, I don't know that it's of equivalent value, but I will say that it's important to honor it all. Yes, I, I can't say that right. the equivalency is there because mm. I think if it causes you to be sick, that's right. worse than I don't like it. Well, let's talk about gluten for a second. If there are people in your house or you have friends that don't eat gluten, there are alternatives, and I wouldn't suggest going after gluten-free bread at a dinner party, but no. you could still serve great pasta dishes. And Mark and I have decided to eat non-wheat pastas for lots of reasons. One is most of them have so much fiber, and I'm really pleased with that. And we've most tried of the non-wheat. Yeah, and the non-wheat pastas, and we've tried a lot of them. Now some don't. There are some made with rice and corn that yep. really don't have much fiber at all, yep. and those are fine for gluten-free. But we found that the pasta is made from legumes, made from lentils, and made from chickpeas. In chickpeas in particular, the texture of that pasta is almost like wheat, and there's yeah. so much fiber in it. Yeah, we decided that we were going to kind of cut out a lot of refined carbs in our house to only eat whole wheat bread, to only eat whole grain pasta, or wheat alternative pasta. This doesn't have anything to do with except wanting to live healthier yep. and make sure that, you know, now that we are of a certain age, we're eating better food. If you have friends who have dairy, this is our my big tip for you. If you have dairy problems, they can have butter, they can have milk. For whatever reason, whether it's lactose intolerant, whether it's a trigger food for IBS, whatever this is for them with the dairy, let me say that you should check out 800 million kosher baking websites <laughs> because there are 800 million dairy-free kosher recipes. If you don't know, if you are kosher, you can't serve dairy in the same meal that you serve meat. And so if you're going to, I don't know, put out a brisket, the dessert has to be dairy-free. You can find hundreds of dairy-free kosher. Just look up kosher desserts online. Mm -hmm. You'll find hundreds of dairy-free desserts. You will. You might even come up with great black and white cookies. Mm. <laughs> look, as Mark says, a thousand kosher bakeries can't be wrong. I limit my dairy intake and I make French pastries that nobody believes have no dairy in them. Coconut milk works. Cashew milk works. You can add extra egg yolks to thicken these thinner things, thinner like rice milk. And there are ways around this. Shortening works instead of butter. Right. Av avocado oil works. Yeah. We're going to talk later to Kayla, and she has some great ideas for baking. And let me also say in this allergy-free problem, if you have someone with celiac or a known wheat gluten problem, be very careful of the meat and sausages that you buy. The sausages are often expanded with wheat derivative fillers in the United States and Canada, in North America particularly, and in the United States and Canada. Uh, chicken particularly can be injected with a saline assault solution to plump up the meat. And sometimes there are wheat derivatives in that solution. So you just have to be careful. Just know what you're buying at the supermarket. You have to read labels because we have a friend who's severely allergic to sunflowers. And if we serve him some 
packaged dinner rolls that I bought, and they're made with sunflower oil, which they might easily be, he's going to be sick. So I have to read labels carefully on all your frozen stuff, on your breads, on everything. Make sure that products aren't hidden in there that your friends can't eat. And also, don't forget that just because you're allergic to one thing doesn't mean you're necessarily, or the person you're serving is allergic to another. For example, I have a terrible allergy, an EpiPen-worthy allergy for bumblebees and wasps and hornets. But that's not the same thing as honeybees. Those are actually different kinds of toxins. And so a honeybee, I have no effect on it, and I have no effect eating honey. But if I'm stung by a wasp or a bumblebee, uh, it's time for the EpiPen. Are people who are allergic to honeybee stings, can they not eat honey? Often. Wow, that's interesting. Often. So the toxin actually carries through the whole it bee depends body. On the so level they're not going to the eat allergy. the bees either. Who eats bees? All right, well, and here's a tip also that I think is just good social graces. If you have friends coming over and somebody doesn't like something or can't eat something and you decide, you know what, I still want to make this dish for everyone else, so I'm going to make something special for them, don't make a thing about it at the table. You just let them know before dinner that what you put down in front of them is okay for them, and you just serve them like everybody else. They'll know they can eat it, and uh, they don't have to feel embarrassed. We have an example about this. So Bruce made this really fantastic nouveau Mexican cuisine dinner party meal for a group of friends, and one of the courses was tongue tacos, and he beef tongue tacos, which I love lengua tacos more than I can say. And he made the tortillas, and he made the whole bit, and we had these tacos. But one friend just couldn't, in advance, had said that she just couldn't stomach the idea of eating tongue. Mm-hmm. Stomach tongue. Uh, mm-hmm. but couldn't stomach the idea of eating tongue. So Bruce actually grilled up boneless, skinless chicken and cut it up, and it looked like uh, the rest of our tongue. It did, and I right. didn't tell anyone else at the table. I told her that when we get to dinner, you can eat everything, don't worry about it. And she didn't have to feel embarrassed that everyone right. was being, you know, told she doesn't want to eat what we do. Right. It's because it's also embarrassing, especially not allergies aren't embarrassing, no. but food likes and dislikes can be very can embarrassing. Be. I mean, I remember I, I've gotten over this, but I remember when I just absolutely couldn't stand cilantro. And it was kind of that was when I first met you. Embarrassing yeah. to say I don't like cilantro. Oh God! I went to a, a dinner party once years ago, and I was served cilantro pesto, and I honestly thought I was going <laughs> to die. I thought I was going to barf my guts out. I am totally over the cilantro thing and I am totally okay with it now. So you can also learn food dislikes and dislikes to get over them. But allergies are a different matter entirely. You can't learn your way out of them. I learned my way out of a huge food dislike. When I first met Mark, my identity as an eater was... As a chef. Yeah, well was I don't eat anything that lived in water. Here I am, the chef, I would cook it, I would serve it, but I wouldn't (laughs) eat fish, I wouldn't eat shellfish. And I learned over the years to like it. And I decided if I'm going to be a food professional and I'm going to write cookbooks and I'm going to talk about food and write about food, I can't line out a whole kind of food that like half the world lives on. Yeah, Bruce had gone back to work for an advertising company and he was a creative director at this ad company post-chef school, post-everything, we we were together just a little bit of time, and he went back to work for this ad agency as their creative director of a small boutique agency. And he would go to this Japanese restaurant every day for lunch. And so I met him one day. We were living in New York City, and I met him on Central Park South, and we went to this... Mishima. This uh, Japanese restaurant. I think it's long gone. Mishima. 
um, together for lunch, and he ordered the yellowtail, grilled yellowtail collar, and then sea urchin. Mm. And I said to him, you know you're over your seafood thing. Mm -hmm. You're officially done with it now. Mm -hmm. You can't say you don't eat seafood. Uh, He's still, I will say, he still doesn't like fishy seafood. I don't like anchovies. I like fresh anchovies when they grill, but I don't like tinned anchovies. Yeah, which I love. And I don't like herring. Which is really the saddest thing and may prove that you're really actually not a Jew. So, <laughs> There you go. Okay, so uh, before we get up next to our one-minute cooking tip, let me say that it would be great if you could rate or subscribe to this podcast. You can subscribe to it so that it always drops in your feed every week. That would be brilliant on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, whether it be Spotify or Google Google Podcasts or Deezer or Apple Podcasts or any of the dozens of platforms there are out there, that would be great. And if you can, and if the platform allows, write a rating or give it a starred review. Five, of course, would be lovely, but a rating or a starred review helps this otherwise unsupported podcast to stay in the algorithms because we're not paying for placement. So there you go. And the world is increasingly a pay-for-placement place. Okay, Next up, our one-minute cooking tip. This is a new one for me, and I love it. Pile potato chips on top of your hamburger, especially (laughs) salt and vinegar chips. With a little pickle relish on a hamburger. Okay, so smash we, it down. We are and eat supported it. by Doctor Smith, the cardiologist. <laughs> at, we we clearly just picked up a supporter <laughs> who is underwriting our podcast. Really, potato, potato chips, chips on a hamburger. Oh, smash it down. Then you don't need to eat the French fries because you you don't are... need to eat them, but you can. Of course, you can. You can always. And then you could crumble ground beef cooked on your French fries, and you can have it both ways. That's you just called have... poutine. So you have poutine with a burger with potato chips on it. That's what's that's your cooking tip for the week oh i okay you know what this may be the lamest cooking tip i've ever heard salt and vinegar chips with sweet pickle relish on a burger is a great cooking tip i'm gonna just leave it there we're gonna move on okay up next bruce's interview with kayla capiello she's the author of easy allergy free cooking a cookbook that will help you negotiate the world of food allergies while you still cook for your friends and family Today, I'm speaking with Kayla Capiello. She is the author of Easy Allergy-Free Cooking, Simple and Safe Everyday Recipes for Everyone. Hey, Kayla. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. You are an expert in cooking without the most common allergens. That would be milk, gluten, nuts, and it's all from your personal experience. So tell me about your journey. Of course. So when I was younger, I guess I always knew I was allergic to nuts. I had tried pistachios at a friend's house when I was pretty young. I was in middle school and I immediately had a reaction. So I immediately went to the allergist and got tested and they told me all of the tree nuts I'm allergic to. It's actually not every single one, which is kind of weird, um, but it's specifically almonds, um, pistachios, hazelnuts, and walnuts. So that came out of my diet like immediately. But it wasn't until I was out of college and started working like in corporate America that I learned I had the celiac gene. So I went gluten-free. And in the same testing, they didn't know what was going on with me. I would just felt sick all the time. She did sneak a test in there for lactose intolerance. And I was like, no, it'll come back fine. Like I eat cheese all the time. And then I was like, oh, okay. 
So those two kind of hit at the same time, but I was a little older and a little more mature. So I felt like maybe I had a better handle on it than when I found out about the nuts. When did you get into cooking and how did that become like a major part of your life? So when I went to college, I obviously started cooking for myself for the first time and they were very simple, like approachable things that anyone cooking for the first time is going to make. But I think what really catapulted me into starting to make like harder and more difficult recipes was when I found out about these allergies. I mean, immediately after finding that out, it's like you think you can't go anywhere. So you can't go to the restaurants you like to go. You can't pick up the pizza you like to pick up. And it's very jarring. So I think initially I just set out to recreate some of those flavors and some of those recipes in an approachable way because I'm not like a Michelin star chef, it's really hard to follow a really difficult recipe. And I searched and searched for ones that were easy and approachable and had all my allergy requirements and it just wasn't out there. So I think I started the recipe journey when I couldn't go get the food that I just like to pick up on a normal basis. So Kayla, when you're forced to cut certain foods out of your life, or if you're cooking for someone who has to follow a very strict diet, do substitutions work for cheese, pasta, and grains, or is it simply all or nothing? That's a tough question. For somebody like me who physically cannot eat these things, it fills a hole or like a void in whatever kind of dish that I'm making. So yes, if I'm making a pizza, like I'm going to want some sort of cheesy texture. So it does fill that void. But does it replicate exactly that cheesy texture I was getting from my favorite pizza place? No, like, of course not. I'm not here to sell you on substitutions being perfect substitutions. But I think that they allow me to have things that I miss from when I was like, not eating this way. One of the most useful things about your book is that in the first chapter, you have a series of baking substitutions. And what surprised me the most was eggs. So many experts talk about using flax or chia seeds, but you have a few more common and easy to use options. Can you talk about egg substitutions in baking? I'm not obviously like allergic to eggs, but I felt like giving up the dairy. I was so close to these baked goods being like totally vegan that I was like, why not just go the extra step and cut out like the eggs or the cholesterol that it has or the fat. So I wanted to add something back to the recipe that had maybe a similar amount of moisture and was kind of a similar texture. I needed something liquidy. And it was really off-putting as somebody, like I said, who really doesn't have a lot of like cooking or baking training to be like, oh, now I have to carry like all these different ingredients that I never would have before. Yep. So what really drew me to finding substitutes were using things I already had in my kitchen. So mashed bananas, applesauce. Sometimes I use vegan yogurt instead because I want it to be things that I already have and I don't have to look at the whole list of ingredients and go out and buy it at the grocery store. If I don't have it already laying around the house, it seems like too big of a hassle for me. And after dinner, if I just want, oh, let's throw together like this quick banana bread, do I have all these ingredients? I just want to be able to have them on hand. And I think that makes it more approachable. And I find that so many people don't have a clue as to how to bake if you tell them no butter. Yeah. <laughs> After looking at your book, it's actually quite simple, isn't it? Yeah. So I definitely experimented a lot. I did like a lot of research on just cutting out all kinds of butter and what could replace it. 
And I feel like I do have some things in the cookbook about it, but I've been using it more in my recent life as well. If you replace butter with avocado, then it's still like a healthy fat, but it's not coming from dairy. So I've been experimenting with that as well, but replacing it with, if you can have peanut butter, or if you can have like a peanut free butter, like I buy chickpea butter as well. It's like anything with that texture is able to recreate. I mean, it's not going to be exactly the same, but is it going to be a healthier version that you can eat that reminds you of the version that's unhealthy? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So when it comes to other recipes in your book, you start off with what you call life-changing dressings and condiments. So you can't call it that without me asking, how did they change your life? (laughs) So I am definitely one of those people who like, I don't crave chicken fingers. I want the honey mustard. So I'm going to make the chicken fingers. (laughs) So I was like, I'm buying all these condiments and using them all, but sometimes it's a bit off-putting if I think about it to look at the back ingredients and be like, I can't pronounce any of this. So some of these I tried to make, either it was my own salad dressing or my own vinaigrette. So I knew exactly where it was coming from. But then other ones are condiments that I do use, like for instance, the campfire sauce. I can't find anything out there that even resembles it. But when I was in college, we used to go to this wing place and they had this thing called campfire sauce. And when we asked about it, they were like, oh, it's just like a few of your normal condiments mixed together. And I like set out on a quest to figure out how to replicate it. Because since then, I have not seen it anywhere. I have not been able to have it anywhere. And I can't buy it in the grocery store. So I was like, I need to find my way to make it at home to be able to enjoy it. Tell me about the campfire sauce. What is it? Campfire sauce is specifically barbecue sauce and mayo. Mm. And then I like to make it a bit spicier. So I add hot sauce to it with garlic powder and chili powder. So you get a bit of that mayo aioli taste, but you also get like a quick punch of spiciness, which is my favorite. And then the gold rush sauce was very similar. I had it when I was in college and needed to recreate it. And this one is still barbecue sauce with the garlic powder and hot sauce, but instead of adding mayo, it uses honey mustard. Mm. So it gives that like nice mustard undertone, which is also one of my favorites. We're making chicken fingers at home. I'm definitely serving both of those sauces. (laughs) You offer up a chapter in the book called Loaded Salads and their main course salads. Do you have a formula you follow when building a satisfying salad? I'm very put off by salads that are 75% lettuce and just (laughs) a little bit of toppings. I just feel that if all your toppings are pretty healthy, why can't I have a good ratio? So I really try to use the equal amount of toppings to equal amount of lettuce or greens. And I really focus on adding a crunch to each one. So whether it's a meat-based crunch like chicken, chicken cutlets, something that comes from like what a main course would have, or instead adding some sort of like crispy potato or homemade crouton. I just really love a loaded salad and I don't want it to be loaded with greens, but I still want it to be healthy. So I was like on a quest to teach people that like salads can actually be really good. Let's talk about a salad. The Asian chicken salad in your book has a head note that says, I love this. Who says you can't put fries on a salad? 
tell me about this dish. I used to get this dish at Applebee's, obviously, before I knew about any of my allergies. And it was like this Asian chicken wrap and it was delicious. But I needed to find a way to like recreate those flavors, but do it in a healthier way. Mm -hmm. So I ended up making carrot fries because I remembered that that wrap had shredded carrots in it. So we had just gotten an air fryer and I was experimenting making all these healthy versions of fries. And I think the carrot ones came out the best. And when I was able to make them with some Asian ingredients, a little bit of gluten-free soy sauce and translate them into something crunchy you could put on a salad, I was like, this is definitely a win. Kayla, when you cut gluten and dairy out of your diet, you would expect, anyone would expect that pizza was gone from your life, but you offer up no less than nine pizzas in your book that are allergen-free, including skinny buffalo chicken pizza and butternut squash and roasted garlic pizza. Tell me about making pizza without gluten or dairy. So pizza was always one of my favorite things to have. Even way back, like when I was a kid, like the best night of the week was Friday ordering in pizza. So it was just so off-putting to be like, oh, I can't just stop by my favorite pizza place and pick something up on my way home from work or after a night out with my friends, it was just such a staple that I enjoyed in my diet. So I really set out on a quest to be able to make that again at home with whatever toppings I wanted. So I started off in the beginning of my cookbook. There are some easy ways to make things that are like pizza, but not actually pizza. So I have how to make French bread pizza, but like you don't have to make the crust from scratch. You just use a gluten-free baguette and make it that way. Or pizza toast or pizza bagels. So I started that way with the easy way of these approachable crusts and whatever toppings I wanted. Mm -hmm. But as I got better at that, I started moving into more crusts that either I would make or I would buy a crust. If you actually call your local pizza shop and they like have gluten-free crusts, they'll sell you the crust or the gluten-free dough so you can make it at home by yourself. And then just choosing like those gluten-free, dairy-free toppings was so freeing to me because you could come up with all of these combos that I used to have in the unhealthy way that was like causing my body to absolutely freak out because I was allergic to so much to now this healthy way that my body knows how to process. And yes, it is different. It has like gluten-free chicken fingers. It has dairy-free cheese. It has like dairy-free ranch on top. But does it reference those same flavors that I used to love in my past? Definitely. In your dessert chapter, you empathize with everyone who can't eat most bakery baked treats, whether it's because of diabetes or high cholesterol, celiac or nut allergies like you have. But yet you have a dozen incredible desserts that can satisfy almost everyone. Was this the hardest chapter to create? Absolutely. The baking world is so different than the cooking world. When I'm coming up with a cooking recipe, like for dinner or salads, it's like if someone adds in more garlic than I suggest or less sauce than I suggest, it's still going to come out in a pleasing way. But with baking, it's like all a science. Like if you add a little bit of this or not enough of this, it's not going to come out the same way. And that was really challenging for me. I think I started with the intent of, here are my favorite baked goods and how am I going to remake them at home in a way that's healthy and digestible and can help other people with dietary restrictions. But I think I spent way more time on that chapter, recreating the recipes, testing them, asking my family to test them just to make sure like they came out good because yeah, I'm sitting here like replicating 
eggs with applesauce, but is that going to be pleasing to someone who's maybe not me with my dietary restrictions? So I would make it and let a lot of people test them, make a lot of people make it. And I think that was the hardest chapter, but it was definitely the most satisfying. Is there any one particular dessert in that chapter that you're really proud of that you think it will just please everybody no matter what they can or can't eat? Oh, yes. So I have in there um, banana blondies with chocolate chips on top. And mm. I just think, yes, everybody's making banana bread and I love banana bread, but the blondies are just on another level. They're kind of like brownies and have the same shape as brownies, but they're loaded with healthy ingredients. And I think that's the best way to go for dessert. If it's healthy, you don't have to feel bad about eating too much and you can kind of just do it every night. I definitely eat dessert every night. Kayla Capiello, author of Easy Allergy-Free Cooking, Simple and Safe Everyday Recipes for Everyone. Great good luck with the book, and thanks for spending some time with me this morning. Thank you. Our, cooking for our friends and family, our family is more uh, difficult than our friends. Our, we, oh, we are friends elite just about anything we most have one or friends. two friends who have a list going but right. most of our friends eat anything right. it's our family well, your mother will eat anything right. my mother will eat absolutely anything right it's your brother and sister will have issues some yes. are medical some are likes and dislikes yes, my brother has a medical issue yeah, my, and my sister-in-law has very distinct dislikes your sister has distinct my sister has dislikes. distinct dislikes and, and she doesn't like to eat. and our niece by your sister is a vegan yeah she's a she well she's a vegetarian she eats cheese and she is 16 years old and she's a vegetarian she doesn't yeah. like to eat animals she's a vegetarian who doesn't eat vegetables well, that's so it well you go figure that thank one out goodness on potatoes own. are a vegetable yeah so um <laughs> uh yeah anyway so cooking for our families often is a little bit difficult we always cook a lot of christmas dinner for my family and there are several issues we have to work around to make a taco bar or to yeah. buy deli. We oh, that's my favorite Christmas, Christmas dinner. I go to a kosher deli in St. Louis when we visit Mark's family. I am not from St. Louis. I am from Dallas. But the family's there now, so I go. we go to this kosher deli, and for Christmas Day, we bring in platters of pastrami and corned beef and knishes and yeah. chopped liver. It's delicious. Okay, before we get to the last episode of this podcast, let me say that we have a newsletter. It goes out every oh, two to three weeks, somewhere in there. It's not every week, by any stretch of the imagination. The content is not related to this podcast. It is sometimes lifestyle, sometimes about Bruce's knitting, sometimes recipes. It just depends. Really, it actually depends. I do the writing of it. It depends on what I want to write about that week. So <laughs> there you go. You can join that by going to our website, bruceandmark.com. There is a sign-up form there for our newsletter. Let me say that I do not see your name nor your email address so it cannot be captured by me nor captured by the provider to sell it to other lists and you can always unsubscribe at any time thanks for doing that okay up next as is always the tradition what's making us happy in food this week pizza bagels I've been shooting a ton of TikTok videos with this look and cook format, you which should. is the format of our new book coming out in November. You should check out our TikTok channel. It's cooking, cooking with Bruce and Mark. Bruce and Mark. And, and I did a look and cook 
pizza bagel in the air fryer yesterday and oh it was delicious and it's beautiful delicious. and it's fun and it was a bagel and marinara and mozzarella and parmesan and pepperoni I and olive oil gardened mm. my rear end off yesterday i've got the last of the mulch we had mm-hmm. i don't know five cubic, five cubic yards of mulch delivered and i have finally gotten the last of it down it went down yesterday i kind of killed myself to get the last of it in so it is now all in, and I came in and scarfed down a pizza bagel for lunch because <laughs> I was it. so hungry. You earned I it. was starving. What's making me happy in food this week is my standard breakfast. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I have a very standard breakfast at this point. Mostly it is a piece of hard cheese. I go buy, or Bruce buys for me, hard aged cheddars, hard goudas, the really hard stuff, the crumbly stuff. Mm, little bit crystals in it. Sometimes <laughs> I get fresh, fresher cheeses like camembert. But anyway, I have a piece of cheese and a big handful of blueberries and that is my breakfast almost every morning and I tell you it makes me very happy I stand at the counter and make my coffee as I eat my piece of cheese and have my big handful of blueberries and I I, I have kind of gotten off the toast racket um, occasionally I'll have toast especially if I'm going to go work in the garden as I did this week because I was going to go out and work in the garden and I knew I needed the carbs mm. but that breakfast makes me very happy every morning so Bruce keeps me stocked and hard cheeses and blueberries. It's a delicious breakfast. Oh, I guess a pretty low carb breakfast, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, blueberries are a good carb. They've got fiber. The fruit's good for you. You should course. eat more fruit. Of course, you should. Okay, so that's the podcast for this week. Thanks for joining us. We know there are lots of podcasts out there. We know there is a wide selection of food podcasts. Thank you for being a part of our journey and our podcast. We certainly appreciate that you're here with us, and we would like to know more about you. Connect with us on social media. There's a Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Notice how we kept all these names. <laughs> cooking with Bruce and Mark channel on TikTok, as we already said. There's a Cooking uh, with Bruce and Mark group on Facebook. Yeah, go there and tell us what's making you happy in food this week, because we tell you it's making us happy. I want to know what's making you yeah, happy. Go there, and you can connect with us under our own names, Bruce A. Weinstein on Instagram or Mark Scarborough on Instagram. We're there, too, and we would be glad to share more of food with you. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.